May we hear your voice, we pray, through Christ. Amen. I think we all are aware of the fact that life can be pretty complicated sometimes. We were flying last weekend, and uh, if you've ever flown with a toddler before, it's infinitely more complex than just sort of flying by yourself. Uh, So many areas of life are complex. We just had tax day, and I know some people for some reason like wait until the last possible moment to file taxes. You're trying to figure out how to fill out, like I use TurboTax to figure it all out for me. But you look at those forms, they don't make any sense, right? You're like, where, what line am I supposed to put stuff on? And then you jump down here, and the, the calculations would make the head of a PhD in, phys- in physics make his head spin. Life's complex, right? And figuring it out and navigating it can be pretty challenging at times. As we navigate the complexity of modern life, we need all of the good advice that we can get. Um, I'm regularly... Googling stuff, trying to be like, how do I do this, or how do I do that? How can I simplify this thing in front of me that I can't quite figure out and make sense of it? Back in the day when there were still such a thing as, as newspapers, remember, remember newspapers actually like printed and folded? There would often be an, an advice column where someone would write in with a question, and dear and so-and-so, how do I do this, or relationship advice and little nuggets of wisdom that would be dispensed. If you go back a few decades before that, people might even still read books like How to Win Friends and Influence People, how to get good advice and wisdom for navigating this world. Go back a few centuries and people would spend their time poring over the works of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, trying to mine the past for wisdom. That's the common thread, whether we're talking about advice columns or Plato or Dale Carnegie. People are looking for wisdom. And even though we don't call it philosophy today, we, we, we are still after wisdom. Here's what it's called today. It's called self-help. If you go into Barnes & Noble or you go into Books A Million, there'll be a section of, of self-help, and it'll be all of these new titles. People are looking for wisdom. People are searching for wisdom. How can I live life and flourish in this complex world? Today, the industry of self-help is big business. The self-help industry is worth some $13.2 billion. Big industry, big business uh, of people trying to improve their lives and trying to come across wisdom. The, the number of self-help books tripled. Uh, you know, ISBNs, the number of uh, ISBNs that are self-help books tripled between 2014 and 2019. Right, people are man publishing books left and right. Here's how to live, uh, live your life. Here's how to improve and how to have success and how to build good habits and and here's strategies and tips for improving our lives. Whether we're talking about time management or anger management, from health building to wealth building, advice is being handed out left and right. And for just twenty nine ninety nine and free two day shipping, you can have it on your doorstep as well. Here's my point. Everybody's after wisdom. Always have been. The Greeks were after wisdom with Plato and Aristotle. Today, we're after wisdom with our self-help. Our grandparents' generation, they were after wisdom with the newspaper columns. Everybody is looking for wisdom. How to live the good life. How to be successful. And to be sure, there's, by the way, there's a lot of good advice, good advice that is being shared. There's a lot of things that are simply true that, that people who aren't believers can, can come across and can write books and can be, can be helpful. 
But ultimately, true wisdom is only going to come from God. True wisdom is not going to be found ultimately in this world, in the creation. True wisdom comes from the Creator. And that's what our text here is all about. Did you notice the words relating to wisdom? Back to Ephesians 5. It says, walk, verse 15, not as fools, but as what? As wise. This is calling us to walk in wisdom, to live in wisdom. Verse 17, be not unwise, but understand. This text is calling us as Christians to live in wisdom in this world. Now, I know it's been a few weeks since we've been in Ephesians, so just to recap. The book of Ephesians is laying out the wealth that we have in the gospel. We might even sort of facetiously call it the prosperity gospel, all the riches we have in Christ. And then the second half of the book is calling us to live as if those things are true. And the, the, the motif that Paul uses is this, this idea of walking. Now, not literally, but living our lives. You say, walk in unity. Christians, get along with each other, beginning of Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.17, he talks about the fact that we are not to walk like the other Gentiles walk. Don't walk like people who don't know Jesus, but live like people who really have been transformed by the gospel. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says that we are to walk in love. Our life is to be marked by genuine love for one another. Ephesians 5, verse 7 and 8 transitions to talking about walk as children of light. Live like people who are defined by light, by holiness, by truth. And here we get the final use of that word walk in the book of Ephesians. And it is that word walk in wisdom. As we navigate this world, the first part of Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 14, talking about all of the evil and corruption that's in the world... It says here in verse 15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. With all of the evil going on around us, with all of the wickedness in the culture around us, how do we navigate it? We need God's wisdom. We need to walk in wisdom. Wisdom, biblically, is not just gaining little nuggets of truth or mantras that you repeat every day. Get up and every day you say these five things to you. That's not biblical wisdom. It's not self-help merely applied in the isolation of self-aggrandizement. Rather, wisdom comes from God and enables us to live well to his glory. So what are some characteristics of a life of wisdom? So I want to have this life of wisdom according to Scripture, not just a, I can have a better life, but wisdom as God defines it. Now, you could read the book of Proverbs and learn a lot about wisdom in the book of James. But this text here gives us some characteristics of wisdom. The first characteristic I want to, want to point out to you is this. Wisdom watches its walk. That's what verse 15 says. See then, look then, that you walk circumspectly. Now the word circumspectly simply means carefully, and in the Greek it actually modifies the word see. So it says, watch carefully how you walk. might put it very sort of simply, watch your step Right? You're walking down the hallway at night trying to get to the kitchen to get a drink of water, and the kids have left the toys strewn all over the floor. You're sort of picking your way along, watching your step as you go. This text is calling us to watch our steps spiritually as we walk through life, not to just kind of go blindfolded, not to walk with our eyes closed, not to sort of just wander out in the street without looking both ways, but to pay attention how we live our lives. Wisdom, in one sense, is simply living life very intentionally. Not just sort of going coasting through life, doing whatever everyone else does or whatever feels good in the moment, but saying, I'm going to put my foot there. I'm going to take these steps. I'm going to live in this way. Wisdom watches its walk. It means that wisdom watches its walk intently. So we go through life. 
As we walk through life, there's tripping hazards that litter the trail. There's protruding roots that threaten to mangle your ankle. There's unseen undulations. There's perilous drop-offs. There's trails that go off into oblivion. We need to watch our walk carefully. Christians are people who live life carefully, not life fearfully. We can be so fearful where we stay at home and never go out because we might get contaminated by the world. But we live in the world, not of the world. And one of the keys to doing that is learning how to walk in wisdom. I think one of the impulses that we have to guard against in our heart is legalism. And here's what legalism is. Give me a rule for everything. Everything's either on or off, black or white, and just let me live by sort of rules. And God does not actually give us a bunch of rules, but rather he says, okay, here's some, here's some right and wrong, here's some commands, yes. But for so many situations in life, we are called to use wisdom, to evaluate carefully the circumstances, the settings, to know God's character so well that we know what step we ought to take in a given situation. Do you pay attention to how you live your life? Do you evaluate how you live your life? Are you intentional about the, the entertainment that you consume? Are you intentional about paying attention to the habits that you develop? Do you examine the assumptions that you have? You know, most people do not assume their assumptions. They just kind of go through, oh, everybody thinks this. Do you take time evaluating, like, why do I think that? Why do I believe that? Why do I think it's okay to fill in the blank? Why do I not do that? Do you find... Do, Do you take time? That's what wisdom does. It looks intently to its walk. It pays attention to how it thinks. Here's the sad thing. Many, many of us here will spend more time thinking about the next vehicle we'll purchase. We'll spend more time thinking about that, researching that, than we will, than we'll spend thinking about our walk with Jesus. We'll spend more time planning next year's vacation, but very little time planning how I can grow more like Christ. We'll devote many hours to investigating beauty products, checking in on our investments while giving very little thought to our holiness, giving very little thought to our joy, very little thought to our righteousness. So when I say that wisdom watches its walk, I mean wisdom studies its walk intently. Wisdom is, is, is studying how am I living my life and then going from that walking intentionally. So look at verse 15. Okay, so, so look carefully how you walk, not as fools, but Wise. This is a call to very deliberate, intentional living. Don't live as simpletons just coasting through life. Going on autopilot in the Christian life is absolutely foolish. That's the idea. Just sort of cruising through with, well, I go to church every Sunday and then just sort of hope for the best. That's the sure way to backslide. Either you are moving forward and going, growing closer to Christ or you're drifting away from him. We only ever become more holy. We only ever get closer to God through intentional effort. Nobody ever stumbled into holiness. No one ever sort of just staggered by inertia and by gravity towards being more like Jesus. Sin is kind of like gravity. All you got to do for gravity to take over is let go. Overcoming gravity takes effort and it takes steps and ladders and, 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 and figuring out ways to overcome it. And the same is true in our walk as Christians. The only way you grow in Christ is with real discipline, developing spiritual disciplines. Now, let me be careful here. I'm not suggesting that 
We sanctify ourselves through our own efforts. And I'm surely not suggesting that we save ourselves through effort. We are saved by grace alone. Salvation and forgiveness is a gift, and we don't work for it, and we can't earn it. And even the effort that we put forward in the Christian life is motivated by God's grace. The power that gives us the ability to take one step after another is God's grace. The gospel saves us, and the gospel motivates us, and the gospel fuels us. It's good news. It's not God saves you, now go try really hard. Nonetheless, the Christian life is one of intentionally taking one step after another, of developing discipline to walk with Christ. Now, I think it's interesting that Paul takes two ideas that we often separate. Wisdom and walk. Lifestyle and philosophy. We often think, oh, there's theory and the ivory towers and people who sort of sit up and stare out windows and contemplate their navels. And then there's the doers. Paul's like, wisdom and thinking and doing, they go together. The Bible marries them. Let not, don't put us under what God has joined together. Wisdom is about a walk. It's about a lifestyle, not merely a philosophical framework. Those who love wisdom... Wisdom lovers, literally the the word we have for wisdom lovers is philosophers wear shoes. To quote one writer, to live as a wise person is not just to have knowledge, but to have skill in living, to have the sort of perception that authenticates itself in practice. It's the end of the quote. Wisdom is living in conformity with reality as defined by God. Wisdom is skill in being able to take the word of God Timeless truth and then applying it to today's life. Wisdom is more than mindless conformity to standards. It is the thoughtful outworking of divine priorities. So you pay attention to how you live. Wisdom, you say, I want to be a wise person to live life to the glory of God in the complexities of modern life. Watch your walk. Know where your feet are going. Know what steps you're taking. Know what direction you are going. Know where you're heading. Let me give you a second characteristic of wisdom from this this text. Verse 16 continues on. Notice there's a comma, not a period. This is grammatically connected. So walk not as fools, but as wise people. How? By redeeming, verse 16, the time because the days are evil. Wisdom makes the most of the time. Wisdom redeems the time. That's the second characteristic of biblical wisdom in this text. Wisdom not only evaluates its walk, wisdom makes the most of time. Wisdom watches its walk, but wisdom also watches the clock. Wisdom knows what time it is. Now, I don't mean like, okay, what time is it literally right now? But I mean seeing time as a limited quantity and investing it in eternity. We read verse 16, I think we, we, we have to consider the fact that we are really, really good at wasting time. Someone's like, oh, I've got an hour to kill. Like, please don't, right? Like, let's use that time well. We, we have limited time. Time is the stuff that life is made of. Now, listen, a lot of us today will complain about being too busy. Hey, you, you come, back, come back to Bible study in Iwana tonight. By the way, I encourage you, come back to Bible study in Iwana tonight. We're going to do an overview of first and, second, uh, first and Second Samuel in the Bible study here in the church service. We've got Iwana and youth group. But what you will tell yourself is, I'm too busy to come back and hear God's word again. Say, man, I, I want to get on that church Bible reading plan. I, I, I'm too busy to be able to take... Six minutes to read the scripture every day. Say, hey, you should be discipling your kids. The Bible commands you to, to love and to nurture your children. I, I'm too busy. And let's just be honest, that is a lie that we have told ourselves so often that we have begun to believe it. 
You tell a lie over and over and over and over again. You begin to believe, I'm too busy to do the things that really matter in life. We're too busy with the wrong stuff. You think, man, if only I lived back in the day when my great-great-grandparents had had time on my hands. Well, actually, the reality is in 1900, the average person worked 60 hours a week. And that was just to survive. And by the way, you didn't have light bulbs or artificial lighting to be able to stay up late at night and read books and watch movies. Like, that was your life. You went to work, you came home, you went to bed six days a week. Now, we work closer to 40 hours a week. We can expect close to 80 years in our lives. We have more leisure time than any other generation in history, and we complain about being too busy. We work less, we play more, we live longer, and we earn more money than any generation in human history. And yet we say, I'm too busy to read my Bible, or to attend church, or to spend time with my family, or to, to get outside and cut the grass. It's not that we're busier. It's that we are more distracted and fragmented than any other generation before. We are more entertained. As one writer said, we are entertaining ourselves to death. We're more stressed and more frazzled and more hurried ever before, not because we have more responsibilities, but because we have more distractions. We feel busier because we squander more time than other people squander. We have more tools to squander our time. The average iPhone user touches his or phone 2,617 times a day and is on it some two and a half hours a day. And the younger you are, the more time you spend on it. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to be on your phone. I have an iPhone. I love it. use it all the time for, for various things. But my point being is we're distracted and we are wasting time on many things that really don't matter and then complaining that we are too busy. We'll squander precious, irretrievable hours binging Netflix, watching football, scrolling Facebook, checking Twitter, swiping through TikTok, updating Instagram, watching YouTube, reading email, and on and on and on it goes. And we take, these, uh, take our, time, our, our, our time and our attention that's a limited quantity, and we take sort of, here's a quarter here, and put it into the slot machine, cha-ching, and you never see it again. All those quarters add up. And one day we will stand before Christ and give account for how we spent every second of our lives. We'll give an account for how we used every minute and every hour and every day. We'll answer before our Creator, before our Savior, how we squandered years of our lives doing things that did not matter. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that hobbies and relaxation or recreation are a bad thing. In fact, God's the one who came up with the idea of a Sabbath, where you unplug and rest. That's good and it's right, and you do need times to be able to just enjoy life. But what I am preaching against is just the wanton wasting of God's one of God's most precious gifts, and that's time. And then using that wasting as an excuse to not do the things that God's commanded us to do. So the text tells us to redeem the time. That, that word redeem is the idea of buy up or buy back. Imagine you knew like they discovered a bunch of oil like up in Citronelle. And you knew that and no one else knew that. And land up in Citronelle is going on sale for like, hey, $1,000 an acre. Now, this is a Ludicrous illustration, because land is never that cheap. You know that land is really valuable. You're going to go and start buying it up, snapping up every purchase you can. That's the idea of this word, is you're snapping up every 
opportunity that God gives us, redeeming the opportunity, buying back the opportunity, taking advantage of the opportunities God gives before us. Wise people use their time well. Wise people seize the opportunities that God brings across their path, and they don't let it slide because they're distracted. I love the wording of Psalm 90, verse 12. It says, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Teach us to count the moments, to count the days, to recognize that every second that goes by is when you are never, ever going to get back again. The 10 seconds we just had of me saying that sentence is gone forever and you can never hit rewind. Yesterday, okay, you're you're never going to get a do-over for yesterday to be let me go back and rewind and, and live that day over again. Time is sort of winding down like a a clock. and Eventually, it's going to hit zero and we'll enter into eternity. Wisdom lives under the shadow of eternity. Wisdom lives beneath the countdown, countdown clock of life, knowing that one day it will hit zero. Wise people are keenly aware of the fact they have only 24 hours in a day to live for the glory of God. Now, this is not a sermon about be more productive, do more, try to cram more into your life. You can be super productive and be a fool. You can, have, you can figure out how to manage time really well and then spend all your time just going after making money and being productive and getting a pay raise. I'm talking about living truly in a truly wise way, which is living for ultimate things, not secondary things. Now, why do we do this? Look at verse 16, back to our text. Redeeming the time rather than wasting the time. Don't squander it, but snap up the opportunities because the days are evil. Isn't that interesting? The reason we are to redeem time and to, to, to buy it back is because the days are evil. I hear a lot of Christians often moan and complain about we are living in such evil days and it's so wicked today and oh, it's the worst time in history. Paul's writing this in the first century and he's saying the days are evil like right now. They're not, it's not that they're going to be. They are. We, we've been living in the evil days since the fall. Human history has always been evil, just in different ways. The way evil is manifested now is different than the way it was manifested 60, 70 years ago. We can't sit around just hankering for some golden era that never existed. The days are evil now. Okay, we acknowledge that fact. Time is short. The world is evil. What do we do with that? We don't retreat. We don't run off, but we rather recognize because the days are evil, we snap up every opportunity to do what? Well, the parallel over in Colossians 4, because Colossians is written at the same time as Ephesians, puts it in the context of how we live towards the world. Colossians 4 verse 5 says, Walk in wisdom, there's the idea we have in our text, towards them that are without, towards those who are outsiders, towards those who are not believers, redeeming the time. Here's the idea. We're snapping up opportunities, particularly in reference to speaking the gospel. This is not just, hey, become a better manager of time so that you can accomplish more at work. Become a better manager of time so you can speak the gospel. Become a better manager of time so you can make disciples. That's true wisdom. He that winneth souls is wise. You know what's going to count for eternity? People who you win to Jesus. That's what's going to matter for eternity. Not beating the next level of call of duty or getting more people to like your tweet on Twitter. Winning people to Christ, that's what's going to matter. Discipling your children, that's going to matter. Souls last forever. So invest in them. 
So how do we go about doing this? I would suggest a few practices. Figure out how to eliminate the time wasters. You need to know where your time is going first. It's like when you make a budget for the first time and you realize, I'm spending how much on buying coffee every day? And it's sort of, well, we need that same shock value of realizing where our time is going. Uh, if, if you have electronic devices, turn on, turn on the features that will track how much time you are using them and on what apps. It may shock you that, oh, I just pop in really quickly here or there onto this little app or check the weather here or there. That time all adds up, right? We need to know where our time is going and then figure out how can I eliminate those time distractors. Maybe there's some apps you need to delete off your phone. Maybe there's times where the phone needs to be turned off and put away. Maybe there's times where you say, you know what, maybe I don't need to have TV because it's just on all the time distracting me and discouraging me and making me angry about stuff. Maybe you could save some money by canceling the cable subscription. Just, just an idea. I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm not binding your conscience on these things. But what I am saying is redeeming the time may mean saying where are the places the time is going, where it is disappearing, the, the, the toilet down which it is being flushed. Let's stop doing that. Let's get rid of the time wasters. And then let's be deliberate about how we use our time. You know what you got to do to waste time? Absolutely nothing. It's like wasting money. You know the way to make your money disappear is don't deliberately tell it where it ought to go. Have a schedule. Have priorities to say, these are the things that are the non-negotiables in my schedule. Growing up, I, I learned so much from my parents. I mean, they taught me everything pretty much that I know. But one of the mo most important things that I learned was not anything they, they said explicitly, but something they did. And it was this. Going to church faithfully was never like up for debate. There was never a time in my life where we would get up in the morning and be like, we're going to go to church this Sunday. No, it was just like it was a given in the schedule. We need to have certain givens that these are like, these are the big rocks. These are the non-negotiables. These are the things that don't change. And other things sort of slot around those. Seeking God. Prioritizing. Here's some things to prioritize. Prioritize Bible intake. Seize the opportunities now to read and hear God's word. Prioritize prayer. Prioritize worship, gathering with God's people. Prioritize witness. Prioritize real relationships with the people God has put in your life. These are all investments in our eternal joy. So wisdom watches its walk, and specifically watches its walk in how it uses time. It buys back, it snaps up the opportunities to live for the glory of God. But number three, wisdom discerns God's will. Wisdom discerns God's will. So verse 17, wherefore, okay, because the days are evil, in light of the, the same reality we saw in verse 16, be ye not unwise, but understand what the Lord, will of the Lord is. So notice the contrast. Unwise, or to, to use a more direct word, stupidity, is contrasted with knowing God's will. The person who is truly a fool is the person who does not give a rip about what God's will is. Wisdom is saying, I'm going to prioritize God's will and I want to understand it and I'm going to do it. That's wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Having a concern and a reverence for God. Wisdom understands. Wisdom discerns. Wisdom prioritizes God's will. See, we often think this is how we get wisdom wrong in today's world. That whole idea of self-help. It's all about me as an atomized individual living the life that I want to live. And so I can be independent and so that I can be autonomous. Wisdom in God's world 
there may be some similarities of how we do certain things and things that we can learn. But ultimately, the big picture of wisdom in God's world is living in submission to not my will, but whose? His will. Not my will, but thine be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's what we pray as Christians. So often we live my kingdom and my will. We will never be wise so long as we believe the lie that we know best. We've got to recognize that there's experts on stuff that I'm not experts on. I need to listen to them. And ultimately, the expert on life is God. And I need to listen to Him. We will never understand God's will until we commit to do God's will. Often we'll say, well, once God shows me what to do, then I, then I may or may not do it. Then I can make the choice to be. But Jesus turns that around in John 7, 17. He says, if anyone will, anyone commits to do his will, he will know of the doctrine. Understanding is not the key to doing. Doing is the key to understanding. When it comes to God's will, we commit to doing it, and that's what opens up our understanding. You want to understand God's will? Come to God with a blank check. It says, God, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. And then you read the Bible, not looking for the loopholes, but saying, what is it you want me to do? Because I've already committed beforehand to doing it. Too often we come to God's word with, here's what I want to do now. How can I sort of fit that into what's it? Where, where are sort of the, where's the wiggle room? Where's the escape hatches? Instead, come to the saying, God, whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do. That's a key to wisdom. Come to understanding God's will. The key to understanding God's will is committing to do God's will. But in the context of Ephesians, what do we talk about when we say the will of the Lord? Oftentimes when we hear the phrase God's will, what comes to our mind? It's individual guidance. Oh, Lord, I'm praying for your will about who to, get, who to marry. Or I'm, praying, I'm seeking God's will about whether or not to buy this piece of property. Or I'm praying for God's will about this car or about this move or about this job opportunity. But that's not really how this phrase gets used in the Scripture. That's kind of our over-personalized, putting me at the center of the Bible. God's will in the context of Ephesians, if you trace this phrase, you can, just, you can do this on your own. Just pull up Blue Letter Bible or whatever Bible software, look up will, words related to will, in the context of Ephesians, and you'll find out God's will is about his eternal plan of redemption. Just give you an example. Back in Ephesians 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, like what God has determined and what God is doing. Verse 9, God has made known unto us the mystery of his will. Notice, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. You say, what's the mystery of his will? What's the secret plan that God is revealing? That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he may gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. God's will is that Christ be glorified and he rule over everything. God's will is through the gospel that sinners would be saved and changed and cleansed and put into the body of Christ. If I want to understand what God's will is for my life in the little details, I need to understand what God's will is in the big picture. We often get that wrong. God, show me the little details, like which parking place should I take here in in Lowe's? What God wants you to understand is the gospel. What God wants you to understand is the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners and the remaking of the universe. It's only when we get the big picture that the details make sense. God's will is to unite everything under the lordship of Christ. It is for us to walk the path of good works, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. God has saved us and ordained that we should walk in good works. 
God's will is to make a new creation beginning right here, right now with you and with me. It's only when we see the broad brushstrokes of God's eternal masterpiece that we can see the little shades of color that that are my story and your story. It's only when we see that God's great plan is the self-glorification of the triune God through the redemption of undeserving sinners. We can begin to grasp, what is it that God's doing in my life? God's ultimately after my holiness. God's ultimately after my Christ-likeness. That's the big picture of what he's doing. When I grasp that, then I can reason from big picture down, okay, why this suffering in my life? Because through suffering, God is making, conforming me to the image of his Son. Why this difficult decision so God would teach me to rely on him? He's doing so much more than we can fathom. God's will is not about this path that is full of sunshine and happiness, that my life will never go bad because I'm walking in the center of God's will. Sometimes God's will goes through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes the path God has ordained for us has thorns strewn across it. Sometimes it has enemies that ambush us. Walking in God's will is not, how can I have a carefree, pain-free life because I do it God's way? No, walking in God's will is about how can I be like Christ as I walk through suffering. Now back to the point at hand. Wisdom, according to Ephesians, is about understanding the will of the Lord. Notice it doesn't say the will of God, the will of the Lord. Lord is a title for Jesus Christ in Ephesians. Doesn't that make it really practical, the will of Jesus? It's kind of that fad back in the day of what would Jesus do? But I think there's something to that. We think about the, the, the will of the Lord would be asking ourselves, saying, what would Jesus do in my situation here? And that's more than going to the Gospels and being like, well, what did Jesus do when he got fired? Well, that didn't happen. But we see his disposition, and we see his priorities, and we see what it is to live as a perfect human being on this earth. Follow him. So wisdom is understanding and doing God's will. It is bringing our lives into conformity with God's great purpose for the universe. How do I live in light of that? Let's move on to a fourth characteristic of wisdom. Isn't this different than the wisdom of the world? Uh, this fourth characteristic of wisdom is inviting the Spirit's control in our lives. Pick that up in verse 18. So wisdom watches its walk. Wisdom redeems the time. Wisdom understands God's will. And wisdom invites the Spirit's influence and control in our lives. Look at verse 18. And, okay, so this and connects this to what just came. We've been talking about wisdom versus folly. Verse 18, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Did you notice there's a series of contrasts in these verses? Verse 15, don't walk as fools, but walk as wise. Verse 17, don't be unwise, but be understanding. And we get the same thing going on here. Don't be a drunkard, but be controlled by the Spirit. Setting these two things in contrast as an example of what it is to walk in wisdom. Now, what's the deal here with this contrast between drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit? Some people will say, well, just as getting drunk makes you act wild and crazy, so being filled with the Spirit will make you wild and crazy, so we're going to roll around the floor and bark like dogs and speak gibberish. That's not the comparison Paul is making at all. In fact, the, the results of being filled with the Spirit are given in verses 19 and 21. It's going to result in worship. It's going to result in intelligent conversation with other people. Being filled with the Spirit results in thankfulness. It results in mutual submission, this order within the body of Christ. 
not chaos of everybody just being overcome and dominated by their emotions. So the contrast between don't be drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit is not one in saying that the, that the, that the effects are the same. In fact, the, 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 this is a contrast more than it is a comparison. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. Okay, when somebody gets drunk, they get out of control, and their inhibitions are lowered, and the result of it is often you know, violence and craziness, and response times are, are less, and so you have people who run their cars into things. Saying so that's what drunkenness does. The effects are very negative. But being filled with the Spirit, its results are very positive in the life. Now, here's where the comparison is. Just as someone being filled by wine, being drunk upon wine or some kind of alcoholic beverage, has an effect and an influence over them, so being filled by the Spirit of God has an influence in our lives. That's the point. Just as wine will take control over you, so being filled with the Spirit brings a godly, holy control in our lives lives. Now, as an aside, Paul's main point here is not to be like, hey, let's, let's take 40 minutes here and talk about drinking. His point here is not the drinking. His point here is being filled with the Spirit. What he is doing here is quoting from, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. He's quoting Proverbs twenty three twenty nine that says, look not upon the wine when it is in the cup. The way they got translated into Greek was be not drunk with wine. He's, he's reminding believers of the prohibition against drunkenness in the Bible. Um, for what it's worth, the Bible consistently condemns getting drunk. The Bible consistently condemns intoxication by alcoholic beverage. It does not condemn drinking per se, but it does condemn drunkenness. Now, the larger point here is be filled with the Spirit. Be filled by the Spirit. Just a couple of, couple of observations here. This is a command. This is not a, hey, when you reach a certain level, a higher echelon of being a Christian, then you need to be spirit-filled. This is a command for every believer. Every believer is to be filled by the Spirit of God. Now, filled with what? Often we read this, well, the Spirit's the thing we're filled with, but he's actually the, 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 the instrument of the filling. Back in Ephesians 1 and verse 23, we find out that Christ is... Uh, is or the church is, is Christ's body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. The thing we're being filled with is God. And the instrument by which we are filled with the presence and the power and the perfections and the beauty of God is by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who fills Christians with the presence of God. But here's the point. Paul expects every Christian to be filled with God's presence, with God's influence, God's control in their lives. So we're commanded to be filled by the Spirit. He doesn't give us a mantra. Do you notice here? He doesn't say, now take these 18 steps and say these words. There's a whole cottage industry out there of people sort of writing books and blogs and sermons to be like, here's the secret to being Spirit-filled. He doesn't give us any kind of a secret here. I think the, the answer to how to be filled by the Spirit is going to be found by simply looking at the rest of Ephesians to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ and the blessings we have in Jesus and apprehending those by faith and enjoying a relationship with Christ so it's a command, be filled with the Spirit. But notice it's also passive. It doesn't say, go fill yourself with the Spirit. No, the Spirit's the one who does this. We're not out there doing all of these things and taking all of these steps. We're the recipient of the filling, not the cause of the filling. 
The Holy Spirit is the instrument of our filling. He's the pitcher from which God's presence fills the empty cups of our lives. If anything, our only role is to recognize our emptiness and our need. Uh, we, we sang some hymns this morning very much on purpose today. We sang, I, I need thee every hour. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. I think the key prerequisite to being filled with the Spirit is recognizing how empty and desperate you are without God. We sing channels only, empty that thou mightest fill me, a clean vessel in thy hand. We're emptied so that he will, will fill us. Empty of what? Empty of sin, empty of ourselves, empty of all the self-reliance. If I can do this myself, it's just saying, God, without you, I can do nothing. Come and fill and empower my life. Something that God does for us, not something that we do to ourselves and then the other observation I have here, and this is not as clear in, in, in English as it is in Greek, but this is a present. This is not, in other words, this is not a command that we just sort of one time, I was spirit-filled back in 1996, and I've been great ever since. This is a way of life every day, yielding ourselves to the Spirit's control every day, inviting the Spirit's influence in our lives, an ongoing day-by-day, moment-by-moment surrender to the authority and presence of God in our lives. So would certainly militate against the notion that being filled with the Spirit is some emotional event that happens when everyone else is doing something in a church service, or it happens when you get baptized. No, this is a way of life for believers. Now, Ephesians 1 tells us the moment you believe in Jesus, you're sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. If you're a Christian here today, the moment you trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation, God the Holy Spirit indwelled you. God the Holy Spirit sealed you. God the Holy Spirit baptized you into the body of Christ. There's a, there's a sense in which it's done and we have the Holy Spirit, but there's a sense in which we live out the implications of this in which the Holy Spirit gets all of us. You have all of the Holy Spirit. The question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of you? Is there, is there any area of your life that you are saying, no, 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 God, you can't have control there? Earlier, Paul prayed that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, that he would take ownership, that he would have full and total control. To sum it up, Ephesians 5.18 comes on the, on the heels of a bunch of other statements about fullness. So the, the fullness is ultimately, the thing we're being filled with is ultimately God himself. In Ephesians 4 and verse 10, we find out that Christ is the one who fills all things. So it's amazingly and beautifully Trinitarian. We are filled with God, by the agency of Christ, through the means of the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity come into this action of filling us as God's people. It is mind-blowing. And to reduce this to some kind of formula, to reduce this to some sort of series of steps, just defies the infinitude of who our God is. So do you have a real experience of the fullness of God in your life? where his influence, his control holds sway in your lives, that you have a sense, a keen awareness of God's presence walking with you. Christianity is so much more than just an ethic. Hey, live this way, live that way. It's about a relationship with the triune God. A relationship, by the way, beloved, that we do not deserve, a relationship we could never force our way into. It's one that we are brought into by grace. If you're not a Christian here today, what I'm talking about, you, you have no, no part in because you've not been redeemed by the blood of Christ. 
Jesus died on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we could enter into this relationship with the triune God, into a relationship that goes beyond anything that we could fathom. And he gives it to all who believe. So God's glory is the content of our filling. Christ is the agent of our filling. And the Spirit is the means by which it is brought into reality in our lives. This is wisdom. Wisdom is inviting the Spirit's influence into our lives, inviting the Spirit's control, inviting God's presence. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, verses 19 to 21 give us the results of the Spirit filling us with the, the presence and the glory of God. How do I know that I am filled with the Spirit? So I, I want to know, like, this is a command. Am I obeying it or not? The way you know is this, is the evidence of the, of the Spirit's filling in your life. So number five, the fifth and final characteristic of wisdom, according to this text, is wisdom exhibits the Spirit's fruit. Galatians 5 uses the metaphor of fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. How do I know I'm walking in the Spirit? As these things are going on in my life. It's the same idea, different metaphor here. When I'm filled with the Spirit, and the idea is I'm filled to the point of, of overflowing. Okay, if you fill a cup to overflowing, what comes out of the cup? The stuff that's inside, right? I was filling up the coffee pot the other day. I had it in the sink, and then I had to run and do something, and I forgot about it. You know what was overflowing out of the top of the coffee pot that was sitting in the sink? Water, right? Like, no duh. You're like, that's brilliant. When we are filled with the Spirit, by the Spirit of God, with the attributes and the glory of God, you know what overflows from our lives? God overflows from our lives. We become a channel and a, and, and a, and a, and a means by which God's greatness and glory is demonstrated. So look at these evidences beginning in verse 19. So be filled with the Spirit. Notice there's not a period, comma, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always, verse 21, submitting. So notice we've got these ING words. There is speaking, there is singing, there is melody making, there is giving thanks, and there is submission. These, are, these, these five participles give us the results, give us the fruit, give us the evidences of the Spirit's control in our lives. So again, how do I know I'm being filled with the Spirit of God? It's not that I had like, man, I had an awesome experience in devotions and I felt tingling all over my body. It's not I came to church and I started speaking a language I never learned before. No, the evidence that I'm filled with the Spirit of God are the things listed out in these verses. Here's how I know. The first evidence, we'll call it edification. Verse 19, speaking to yourselves, probably better translated speaking to one another. You as Christians, we're supposed to come to church and then talk to each other. This is not just to come and listen to Pastor Sam, though this is part of, part of our worship, is listening to the Word of God being preached. But a large part of the body of Christ is our interaction and our edification and our conversation with each other. One of the evidences of being filled with the Spirit is edifying things come from our mouths. We speak to one another. We teach one another. We have conversations with one another, not just about football and politics, but about God's word, about God's truth, about what, what is being taught in our devotions. So why we have our Wednesday night fellowship groups is because God literally commands us to talk to each other and to have fellowship with one another. And it's just a simple way for us in the structure of our, of our church life to facilitate that, to encourage us as Christians to have some, maybe some faltering, maybe some uncomfortable, maybe some awkward conversations about what God's word says to each other. 
Now, he gives us an example of one of the ways we can speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sang four hymns already today. We'll sing another one. And I think we understand we're singing to praise God, but you know, one of the things we're also doing is we're speaking to each other. I need thee every hour. I'm singing that to God, but I'm also singing that to remind my brothers and sisters in Christ of what is true. This is pretty sweet. When you think about this, when we sing as a church family, there are two audiences. There's the vertical audience of me singing directly to God, and there's the horizontal one of me singing and speaking to my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's one part in the service where we all get to participate, where all of us get to give the sermon is when we sing together. So edification. Now, some people will really go to seed on sort of parsing out the difference between psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, Psalms probably refer to the psalms in the Bible. They would have sung those in the early church. Hymns and spiritual songs, these words are used as hymns that are, are praising and glorifying God. But I wouldn't draw a sharp distinction between these, the way that some people want to try and have different genres. We just don't know enough about what the early church did. We do know this as God's people, we're meant to sing. When we come together, we're meant to to celebrate, to sing together as God's people, and to edify each other as we do so. We move on in verse 19, singing and making melody in your heart to God. That's not just repeating the same thing. That's giving us a second evidence of the Spirit's fruit. It's not just edification, the one another dimension, but this is worship, the vertical dimension. Notice, Notice verse 19, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So there's two audiences to one another. And then to the Lord. One's corporate, the other is individual. Not only do we sing to each other, we sing to God. Double audience, one on earth and one in heaven. Biblical worship is from the heart. Biblical worship is going to engage the emotions. Somewhere along the way, we got this notion that having any emotion in our worship is bad. No, 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 you read Psalms, emotions all over the place, expressiveness is all over the place, instrumentation all over the place. Our worship should be joyful and should engage our hearts. I think sometimes we come to church and it would take a lot to convince me that we really believe the things that we're saying. A.W. Tozer put it, put it quite pithily when he says, more lies are told from behind a hymn book than anywhere else. I surrender all while I'm thinking about something completely different. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, while I'm thinking about, man, I sure hope that my football team's winning the game. To utter praise with our mouth without the engagement of our hearts is hypocrisy. So worship engages the heart singing to God. Okay, a third, a third result of being filled with the Spirit is verse 20, is thanksgiving. And notice we get this, this term always, giving thanks always for all things. This just blew this outside the walls of the church. This is no longer just something that happens when we gather on Sundays, but being filled by the Spirit of God has a result in the way we live our lives the rest of the time. We can only give thanks for all things if we recognize that all things work together for good to them who love God. We'll only be able to give thanks in the midst of every circumstance if we really, truly believe that God rules over every single circumstance. God has not left the operation of this world to fate. He has not left the outcome of history to chance. He's not left it in the hands of the autonomous will of creatures. He rules over this world, working all things according to the counsel of his will. And that's why, in the midst of even crazy circumstances, we can thank him. Even if I can't thank him for the circumstances, I cannot thank God for evil. You can't sit down and be like, I praise you, O God, for adultery. No, that would be blasphemy. 
But even when there is heartache and betrayal, I can thank him for his faithfulness. I can thank God for being God, even when everything else in, the lives, in my life is going crazy. Every day we enjoy answered prayer. Every day we eat daily bread that we never asked for. Let's thank him for it. And then verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now that's going to get worked out the rest of Ephesians 5 and chapter 6. It means wives are going to be subject, submitted to their husbands. Children will be submitted to their parents. Servants will be submitted to their masters. There will be rightful submission in the context of ordered relationships. Oftentimes, people who claim to be filled by the Spirit can become very arrogant. I'm filled by the Spirit. You need to listen to me when the Bible says, no, being filled by the Spirit will have the result of our humility, submission to God-given authorities in our, in our lives. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Our submission to authority is not done out of craven fear of the authority. It's done out of reverence for Jesus. It's done out of reverence, out of respect for the fact that over every authority is King Jesus. No authority is ultimate. The government's authority is not ultimate. A parent's authority is not ultimate. A husband's authority is not ultimate. It is under the authority of Christ. Ultimately, the one that we submit to is Jesus. Which means, by the way, if those two things come into tension, we always submit to Jesus. So if government's telling you to do something that goes against God's word, you go with Jesus. Same's true in a, in a marriage. So what does is, what is being filled with the Spirit look like? It looks like mutual edification. Have conversation today with brothers and sisters in Christ about God's Word. Say, hey, let's talk about the message. Or I'm going to come out on Wednesday to a fellowship group. If you're not in a fellowship group, I encourage you, sign up for one. Come out and just be part of these one another in conversations we're having. Worship. We come together as God's people and we celebrate the triumphs of His grace. We sing to him as God's people. We don't just sit here and listen to a performance up in the front of the church. No, we, we, we participate in this. Thanksgiving, God, all of these circumstances are under your control. Lord, I'll submit to the, the rightful authorities in my life. This is what wisdom looks like. These flow out of being filled by the Spirit. So where are you going in your life for wisdom? We're all looking somewhere for it. Maybe a sort of homespun wisdom like Ben Frankman's Poor Richard's Almanac type stuff. Maybe it's stuff on Twitter. Maybe it's a Bible verse here or there snatched out of context. Here's what I would implore you to do is go to God for wisdom. Walk this path of wisdom as he has laid out for us in, 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 Ephesians, in Ephesians 5. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. May God help us as his people to live lives of wisdom. Would you bow with me? Father.